I think I just lost my uh, announcements gig after that. Um, yeah, so happy Advent. We have finished our series in Acts that we wrapped up last week, and now we're entering into uh, an Advent series through the rest of the year. Um, and this year, we're going through the book of Isaiah. And maybe you're wondering why Isaiah for Advent? Isn't it supposed to be donkeys and baby Jesus and all the things? Um, Advent is a season, as uh, Alicia talked about, it's a season of the church, um, this liturgical annual rhythm meant to draw us into a reality of something that's true. And so just as the Old Testament people had feasts and festivals and seasons um, meant for them to remember and be reminded of who God is, of who they are, of what he's done and what um, he is doing in the world, uh, we too in the church have seasons, have these annual rhythms, um, the two major ones being Easter and Advent. Um, and as Alicia mentioned, Advent means coming. It means arrival. And so it's a season for us, a season of waiting, a season of anticipating an arrival, namely the arrival of Jesus. Um, and so it is one of the key points of this is that it's not just a rehearsal it's not just us pretending what it would be like if we lived before Jesus' birth, um, because we too are in a season of Advent. We are waiting for Jesus' second coming, for his second Advent. And so why Isaiah? Because the season of Advent in Isaiah's time is very similar to the season of Advent that we are in in the year 2022. The longings and hopes and anticipation that they sung about and longed for is not all that different than what we sing and long for. That second song we sang, We Will Feast in the House of Zion, that's from the book of Isaiah. Their longings, their hopings, their waiting and anticipating an arrival and Advent is very similar to this season that we are in as we wait for Jesus' second Advent. And so... In this Advent season, we are learning, we are meditating on what it looks like to anticipate the fulfillment of God's promises to his people. What it looks like for Isaiah's time as they anticipated an arrival of these promises and what it looks like for us. And if you're not familiar with Isaiah, if you're not familiar with uh, the prophets, the prophetic books, which Isaiah was one of the major prophets, um, they are books primarily not about fortune-telling or future-predicting. They're primarily about promises, about God's promises to his people and how he will fulfill them. And so, yes, in as God tells, as God tells Isaiah and his prophets of these promises, there is an aspect of future things because he's showing them what it'll be like when, they, when he fulfills these promises. But they're not primarily about um, these cool future things. They're primarily about that God has promised something that he loves his people and he is bringing about his promises. And so they were to be these messengers, these proclaimers of these promises. That's what the prophets were about. About God reminding his people what he has told them, what he has promised to them, and that his promises are sure, that he's not absent or asleep in our world, but that he is acting in fact, that he is the main actor, the primary actor, that he is fulfilling all of his promises, that he's making all things new. And so in Isaiah's time, 700 years 
before the first advent, um, the people of God are in chaos. They are in war, in conflict. Uh, Israel is actually divided into two kingdoms, a northern and a southern at this time. So there's conflict even within the people of God. And then outside of them, there's all these nations, all these kingdoms at war with each other, at war with Israel. Israel's trying to figure out what alliance to take, which sides to take. And the outlook is bleak. There's a lot of hopelessness in Isaiah's time. And the root of this chaos, the root of this war and conflict, God tells them is their sin. That they have turned away from God, that they have forgotten God, they've forgotten his promises, and they've run after these other kingdoms and other nations for help, for deliverance, for rescue, for salvation, for security. And then that these nations, these kingdoms they turn to, have in turn turned on them and plundered them and ruined them and brought destruction to them. And then he tells them that it's even going to get worse, that soon these kingdoms they've turned for help, they will take them captive and bring them into exile. And so chapter one details all of this, that all of this chaos is a result of them living as their own gods, of living just like the world who doesn't know the one true God, who doesn't know his promises. It's this word of, of judgment, of look at what your sin has done. Look at all the results that your sin has led you to. You've become corrupt. You've become greedy. You've become power hungry. You have abandoned care for widows and poor. You've abandoned the foreigners in your land. That you've been unfaithful and have brought all of this ruin on yourself. That is how chapter one starts. That is how Isaiah's message starts. But it ends, chapter one ends with a word of hope, a word of salvation. That though they have been unfaithful, God remains faithful. And he will be faithful to his people and to his promises. That he's coming to save them. He's coming to save them from themselves, from their sin, from the war and conflict that surrounds them. That he will not leave them in the results of their own faithlessness, but that he will rescue them and redeem them and restore him. That he is coming. He is adventing. He is arriving to save them. So, who's reading our passage this morning? Great. Tyler, come on up. Our passage, the start of chapter two, right? You have this, this long chapter about their sin and despair and chaos and war, but it ends with this message of salvation. And then our passage this morning is right after that, the beginning of chapter two. And it is this vision, this poetic picture of what it'll look like when God comes. What will it look like when God advents, when he arrives and redeems and restores his people? And at its core, at the core of this vision, is a word of hope. Hope in what's coming. Hope in this picture of what is adventing. So do you read it for us? This is Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law 
and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes from many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. So we have this, this incredible image, this incredible vision of what is coming. What is this kingdom that God is bringing into the world? What are the fulfillment of his promises? And in this passage that we have before us today, we really have two things, two calls for the hearers, for the readers of this word, of this good word, to behold and then to come to behold this hope, to see, to behold it, to have your eyes opened, to have these eyes of hope for this glorious future. That's the main part of this passage, this poem in verses two to four. And then in verse five, we have a call that in light of this, in light of beholding this hope to come, to come walk in the light of this hope, of this sure, of this certain hope. So first, behold, right? This poem that starts in verse two, Here's what's coming. Here is what is adventing, that this will come to pass. It will come to pass in the latter days, that the mountain of the Lord will be lifted up higher above every other mountain. That Mount Zion in Jerusalem, where God's temple is, where he dwells, that it will be raised up. And Mount Zion in Jerusalem wasn't a particularly large mountain. It was not even the biggest in Israel, certainly not compared to the neighbors. It's just this mediocre mountain. And so it's this imagery because the ancient world put so much into uh, these high mountains. In the ancient world, mountains, they reached up to the heavens. They reached up to the gods and they were near to the gods. So the gods dwelt there. And so there was so much emphasis on these mountains. And so it's this poetic imagery of, of this mountain in Jerusalem, of this Mount Zion where God dwells, of it being lifted up above all other mountains, such that they are just like hills. And then that the nations, the nations would flow to this mountain like rivers. And for Israel, for Israel and Judah, the two kingdoms of God at this time, when they hear nations, they are thinking of all these kingdoms, of all these nations at war around them, at war with them. And so they're hearing, wait, these nations, all of these nations, they will come, they will flow to this mountain. They will flow to the mountain of our Lord. And it's this like impossible, miraculous, majestic imagery of rivers flowing up a mountain. Rivers don't flow up mountains, they flow down mountains. But that there's something that this mountain of the Lord, that it will draw the nations such that they will flow up to this mountain of the Lord. Saying, come, let us go. Let us hear of the ways of the Lord. Let us be taught how to know this God. I mean, imagine with me for a moment, if all the religions in Nashville, if all these different religious groups and all these nations with all their beliefs, if they came into Aiken this morning, they flooded through these doors. There's this flood of people saying, we wanna know your God. We wanna be taught his ways. We wanna learn how to know and how to follow him. This, this image is even more spectacular than that because all of the nations and all of the religions around them are at war with them and at war with each other. 
And so it's this image of them coming, of them being drawn in, in one heart and one mind to this mountain, to this mountain of the Lord. And then this poem, it ends with this incredible image, right? You have the mountain of the Lord being, being raised up. You have all the nations coming to it like rivers saying, we want to know the Lord. We want to learn how to walk in his ways. And then it concludes with this image of shalom, of peace, of the word of the Lord going out and ending all war, ending all conflict, settling all disputes, and the people receiving it, accepting it. And now there is no more war. There is no more conflict because they've received this word. They've received this word of shalom. And so they're not even going to learn war anymore. They're not even going to train for war anymore. They're going to take their weapons and beat them into farming tools. And that imagery, that imagery is so rich that the word of the Lord causes such a peace that the peoples take these instruments of death and turn them into instruments of life, right? These tools, these weapons of war and conflict and death being turned into, being beaten into tools and instruments of life, of original purposes, right? This is, this is alluding back to, this is hearkening back to the garden, to Eden, to man's original purpose, that man would know God, would dwell with God, and would create life, would cultivate and create life on the earth. And so it's this rich imagery of everything that sin has caused, all of the war and conflict that has come into the world, all of the division that has come into the world, that there will come a day when the, the word of shalom, the word of peace comes from the Lord and that that is all redeemed. It is all restored. It is like there has been no sin. That people and God would be in relationship and that they would create life. That he is redeeming from death to life, these instruments of death to instruments of life. That is what's adventing. That's what's coming. And so the question is, why do we struggle to behold this hope? Right? The people of God have heard this before. This is not a new promise unfolding. They've heard this promise many times. So why do they need to hear it again? Why are they struggling to behold this vision? Why are they forgetting it and turning away? Why do we need this passage of a future hope? Because we try to avoid hope. We don't want to hope because hoping is waiting, waiting. In Hebrew, in the Bible's language, there's two words for hope and they both mean to wait, to wait. Waiting, waiting on the Lord, hoping in the Lord. And we hate waiting. We are a restless people who do not want to wait. We want to avoid waiting. We want to avoid hoping. There's this story, I, I can't remember where I heard it or read it, but that there was this monk at a monastery and he was sitting outside of the monastery, sitting in one spot, listening and waiting on the Lord for hours. And this visitor, this tourist of the monastery saw this monk and kind of watched him for a while and, and was amazed. And then later throughout the day saw the monk. He had finished his time. And, and she went up to him and said, 
I, I just don't know how you're able to do that. I could not sit and do nothing for hours like that. And the monk said, well, I can tell you what your problem is. You think waiting on the Lord is doing nothing. I remember the first time I heard that, I was like, yeah, that's me, right? I don't want to wait. We do not want to wait. And because hoping is waiting, because hoping is waiting on the Lord, waiting for his promises, we don't want to hope. We want to avoid hope. And so what do we do? We know something's wrong. We know that something is wrong with the world, that the world is not how it ought to be, that we are not how we ought to be. But we don't like hoping, so what do we do? We try to create this peace on our own. We try to create a sense of false peace in our life. If, if I can create this sense of peace, something like this passage is pointing to, if I can be okay, then I don't have to hope. I don't have to wait. Verse four of this passage, this imagery of, of this word of shalom going out and the nation's no longer at war. This verse is actually etched in a wall at Peace Park in New York City, which sits right outside the United Nations building. And it was, it was built or, or it was etched into this wall at the same time the United Nations uh, building was being built, almost like this vision statement of what the United Nations is about, of no more war, of no more conflict, of peace among the nations. Like this is what our goal is. But it's actually not all of verse four that's etched on that wall. They skip the first part. It starts, they shall turn swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war. The first part of verse four is not there. He shall. He shall judge. He shall settle. And then they shall. Right? The, the flow of this passage is that for, for this word of the Lord is going out and settling peace. He shall do this. And then they shall. That they shall hear this word and respond. And so the United Nations wall is this picture of peace without a peacemaker. It's this hope for a redeemed world without a redeemer. That there's no author, there's no enactor of this. And really, it's that they will do it, to do it on their own, right? That's what Israel did at the time of Isaiah. They forgot God, they forgot his promises, and they said, we're going to go get peace on our own. We're going to go figure out which kingdom can bring us security and peace and this hope. We're going to go accomplish that on their own. And it only turns into multiplying destruction and ruin on them, right? It's this, it's this concept of like, we got ourselves into this mess. We got ourselves into this chaos and conflict and war, and we're going to get ourselves out. And the reason why that's false peace is because we are a broken people. The best, most valiant efforts of us to create this sense of peace in our life, the best, most valiant efforts of the United Nations can never bring this kind of world peace because we need a savior outside of ourselves. We need a grand redemption. We need the one who can, by his word, settle all disputes, settle all war, settle all division. 
that he can bring good news to every nation and every person. We need the part of the verse that's omitted from that United Nations wall. And there's actually this, this like tragically comical article I found as I was trying to figure out like who decided to put this, these, this random verse from Isaiah on this wall, like how did this come about? And there's this New York Times article that I read at one point, I mean, this is after, it, it, this, was, this was etched in the wall in the 50s, but this is later in the 80s, that at one point, the mayor of New York City, he tried to add words to the wall because he was mad at the United Nations. And he says that he wanted to add words about the United Nations' immorality, cowardice, and hypocrisy. Right? He, he wants to add some words. He even wanted to find a Bible verse to do it, to stick with the theme, to add words because he was mad at the way the United Nations was handling some affairs. And the ironic thing is that the United Nations, with this goal of world peace, can't even bring peace in the city that it's headquartered. Its own mayor is mad at the way that they're handling this. Right? We are, as the mayor said, immoral hypocrites, and cowards. We need a savior. We need redemption outside of ourselves. And we at times, like the United Nations, like Israel in Isaiah's time, we try to create this false peace on our own because we don't want to feel our desperate need. We don't want to anticipate and wait and hope. And so we try to make this false peace where we can now but we must come to the end of ourselves. Like there's a reason why Isaiah starts his book with this picture of just how bad it's gotten, just how bad it's gotten in Israel, just how bleak the outlook is that their sin has caused them so that they can actually hear the good news of God's advent so that they can actually desperately long for God's advent. This is why in the scriptures, the kingdom of God is so often connected to the needy, to the broken, to the sufferers, the prisoners, the outcasts, the widows, the orphans. All right, it's those who are desperate, desperate to hear good news of great joy, desperate to behold hope, to behold this hope, this picture of redemption and renewal. And we cannot hope, we cannot truly hope, we cannot truly behold this hope unless we know how desperate and needy and broken we are and that we cannot do it by ourselves. We cannot redeem ourselves. We cannot create this vision of peace on our own. I need God. I need God to Advent. I need redemption. And I need it from a Savior. So no United Nations, no world, no Evan, no Midtown West. The hope of the world is not a peace treaty that will be broken in 30 years. The hope of the world is not whatever ways I try to create this, this vision of peace in my life. The hope, the hope that Isaiah unfolds throughout the rest of his book, the hope that all of the prophets point to, the hope that the entire Old Testament points to and anticipates is the very part left off that United Nations wall that God is coming, that he is adventing. And when he comes, when he arrives, he shall, 
He shall do this. He shall redeem. He will bring life. He, by his word, will end all conflict and war and death. And those who hear it, they shall, in response, lay down their weapons of death and and take up weapons of life. That to all those who hope and believe and believe in this advent of God, that we will be made alive and made able to beat our swords into plowshares, to learn war no more, to feast in the house of Zion, to feast in the Mount of Zion and weep no more. So people of God, would you behold? Would you behold first our need for hope? our desperation that things are not how they ought to be, that I am not how I ought to be, and I desperately need redemption and renewal. And then would you behold this portrait, this vision, this poetic picture of of God adventing? Would you behold God adventing with this redemptive word? And for us, God has advented. He advented in Jesus' birth. That was the first advent. And so we live in this already, but not yet. Already God has advented. Already he has come in Jesus' birth. And when Jesus came, he inaugurated, he began this kingdom, this picture of this kingdom, that it's unfolding, that its promises are continuing as we wait and anticipate his second advent when he comes and brings the promises of this kingdom in full, in final, when we will weep no more, when there will be no more war or conflict, when the finality and fullness of this kingdom arrives with Jesus' second advent. So would you behold this adventing God in his kingdom? Would you hope in this? This is the true story. This is the truest story, the truest reality. This is what the entirety of history is pointing to, that God is adventing, that it will, that it shall come to pass in the latter days, that he will, he shall, he is coming, he is arriving. And this is why we have this Advent season, to remind us of that longing, of that waiting, of that hoping, of that anticipation for the Savior of the world coming into the world to anticipate and then behold the advent of Jesus, the hope of the world. And so we have this this picture laid out for us in verses two through four to behold, to take in, to have eyes of hope to see it. And then it concludes with verse five with this call, a call to come walk in the light of this hope, right? Verse five, come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in light of the Lord. So what, like, what is this call? This call to walk in the light of the Lord. There's really two purposes, two reasons in this call. First, again, alluding back to Genesis, alluding back to our origin story, alluding back to how we were made, all the way back at the inception of God's people, they were meant to be a light to the nations. They were meant to be this city on the hill such that the nations, such that the peoples of the world would see the way they cared for the poor, would see the widows and orphans cared for, would see the way they welcomed foreigners, would see that their land was one of justice and mercy and love. And they would say, I want to know their God. 
they would see the character of God's people as a reflection of God. And that when they saw this, that they would want to come to the mountain of the Lord, that they would want to know, how do I know your God? How can I walk in his ways? And all of the ruin and chaos and war that Isaiah details in chapter one, in this opening chapter, is that they weren't walking in his ways, that they have abandoned his ways. They've forgotten God and they've run after the kingdoms of the world. And so it's a call to come back, come back, O house of Jacob, come walk in the light of the Lord. Come walk in that which you were made for. For the nations, they will come to you. They will see the way that you walk. They will see you living life as you were made for, and they will want to come. They will want to come live as they were made for. So come, come walk in the light of the Lord because this promise that the nations will come to the Lord's mountain is sure, right? That's what he's laying out before them. This will happen. This promise that I've said that you will be this light to the nations, that the nations will come. The promise I told you all the way back at the very inception of you being my people, that will come true. So come live how you were made for. I am reminding you that I will do this. I will draw the nations. This promise is sure. And then secondly, the second reason in this call is that it's a call to walk in that which they long for, which they now have in part, right? This thing which the vision says the entire world will flow to, they will long to hear of how to walk in the ways of the Lord, to how to learn how to know the Lord. They have that. The Lord has spoken to them. The Lord has taught him his ways. They know what it is to be blessed and to flourish in life, to live as they were designed for. And so he's saying this longing, this picture of future hope, the, the thing that you long for, you have in part now. So come walk in it. I, I want to use Matt's ACL as an analogy because it hasn't been used yet. Um, <laughs> Matt has a new ACL, right? But he's in this period of, of already, but not yet. Already he, he's had the surgery, he has the new ACL, but there's still this time, this recovery where it's growing and being strengthened, where he'll be able to have fully, it fully restored and renewed. So Matt has a new ACL, right? But he's waiting, he's waiting for these months to recover and, and have it fully back, to be fully restored. What if Matt said, well, the doctor said it would be three months. I don't know how long an ACL takes, six months. So I'm just going to lay in bed until then. Like, Lee, would you roll the hospital bed in? I'm, I'm just going to lay here until the six months is up. Right? If, if he is longing, if he is waiting, if he is anticipating that day where he will be able to run again, where he will have the full restoration of what he lost, then he's going to want to taste whatever portion, whatever measure of that that he can now. If, if he's just saying, well, I'll just wait until whatever, that almost sounds like a bad thing, right? But if it's really this thing he hopes for, he's longing for, he's anticipating, then whatever measure of that he has now, he's going to want to taste. He's going to want to walk. He's going to want to do what he can until it's fully healed. And the same is true for the call at the end of this vision. 
Like if you have beheld this hope, this future that is coming, if you have felt your desperate need for this hope and are eagerly longing, waiting, anticipating the advent of it, then come taste and see now. Like, yes, there's this already, but not yet. Yes, we don't have it in full. Yes, we're waiting for the advent, the second advent when it comes in full. But he has spoken. He has shown us the light. And for us on this side of Jesus' birth, God's kingdom has come in the advent of Jesus. And he is unfolding these promises before us as we await the day they come in full. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. So if you truly long for that, if you truly hope, if that is your true hope, then come, come walk in the light of this hope. We are about to do what to the world looks like doing nothing. We're about to sit and meditate and wait. And to the world, it looks like doing nothing, but it's the truest thing we can do. To meditate on this vision of the advent of our Lord. To meditate, to sit, to wait and hope in this coming of what will be for all eternity. To behold and to hope, to wait for this coming kingdom. And if you're struggling to do this, to wait on the Lord, if you are like me, if you are like Israel in Isaiah's time, easily forgetting the promises of God, and to try to turn and make a peace and hope of your own doing, would you ask the Lord to give you eyes of hope to behold this kingdom, to behold this good news? He loves you. And though we are faithless, though we are a forgetful people, an unfaithful people, he is faithful. He will not forsake his people or his promises. We are a people who need to behold again and again, who need to wait and anticipate the advent of our Lord over and over again to remind us of what's true and what's good and what's beautiful, to remind us of the truest story ever told, the advent of God. So, beholding and believing this hope, come. Come, you who are desperate for a Savior, desperate for redemption. Come, you needy people, who need the arrival of a hope that you could never obtain on your own. Come to your long expected, anticipated Jesus who has come to you. Let's pray and then we'll have a few moments to, to wait and hope on the Lord before the next song. Lord, you are the adventing God. Would you draw our hearts into the hope of your promises? which find their yes and amen in Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.